All glory to God alone. Amen. I want to thank those of you who have indicated to me that uh, you've been praying for me as I'm uh, preparing this series. The rest of you who didn't mention it, but you're praying, thank you. I appreciate that and I need your prayers. I hope that you're also praying for Jay and Becky. This is an incredible time, an unusual time in a pastor's life. I was privileged to have one sabbatical in 50 years of pastoral ministry. It came about midpoint through those years, and um, it played a very pivotal, what? It was a very pivotal moment uh, for deciding to continue to sustain in pastoral ministry. I don't know that Jay's facing that. I'm not suggesting that at all. I just want you to know these can be very critical times, wonderful times, refreshing times. Pray for God's refreshment in your pastor's heart. Last Sunday morning, we began a six-part series of messages from Exodus chapter 32, entitled Lessons Learned on a Staycation. As we began, we located the Israelites and camped at the base of Mount Sinai following a period of time characterized by almost frenzied activity. The people of God, between two and three million strong, find themselves in the midst of what is to be a nearly year-long staycation imposed by God Himself. And while a year is a rather long time for a staycation, as most of us would agree, having just come through a year-plus of COVID shutdown, Vacations are not at all unusual in God's plans for His children. It is not at all uncommon for God to introduce into the lives of His people a season of quiet and relative inactivity for the purpose of instructing them, teaching them lessons that otherwise they might never come to learn. There are several examples in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we have the example of Jonah's three days and nights, all expenses paid staycation in the belly of a great fish. We have an example of Daniel, um, his short stay in a lion's den, and of the prophet uh, Elijah, whom God placed out in the wilderness on the east side of the Jordan River for a period of time. In the New Testament, we have examples of staycations. Jesus himself often retreated away from the crowds to be alone with his father or to take a few of the disciples and have them join him on a staycation. Paul's time spent in the Arabian desert before he took upon his, himself his public ministry was something of a staycation, a time when God instructed him by his spirit and taught him some of the deeper truths of the word. Many of us here this morning can recall some staycation from our own personal history, a season of illness limiting our activity, perhaps even requiring bed rest, a layoff at work or a hiatus between jobs. Perhaps it came in the aftermath of some personal burnout or some family tragedy. In nearly all these cases, these periods in our lives that we would have, uh, are periods in our lives that we would not have chosen for ourselves. Uh, we would prefer the activity and the productiveness of the other seasons, the 
fun times. But in retrospect, I believe probably nearly all of us would admit that these unwelcome staycations actually proved to be days, weeks, months, sometimes even years, when God came to us in unusual ways and taught us lessons we would not have learned from Him had it not been for these precious times. Some while ago, I was, I was reading about the uh, reading and about and considering the value of quiet times coming out of my Quaker history. That's what we do for fun. We read about quiet times. But I was reading about quiet times and reflecting on their value in our lives. And I came across the following, I don't know what to call it, but a slogan. It read almost like a bumper sticker for those of us who are tempted to evaluate the worth of our days based on our activity. In bold letters, it read, don't just do something, sit there. Don't just do something, sit there. I believe that this was Jesus' message to Martha on the occasion we heard read during our scripture time this morning. Mary is sitting at his feet, listening to what he would say to her. Martha is in the kitchen, Jesus says, worried and upset and full of doing, to which Jesus says, may I paraphrase, Martha, Martha, don't just do something, sit here, I have things to teach you. This brings us back full circle to the children of Israel who are experiencing a God-imposed staycation at the foot of Mount Sinai. Our text today comes, of course, once again from Exodus 32. I'm going to just read two verses to kind of set the stage for a message that I'll be looking at today, which is entitled, So What's All the Noise About? Verses 17 and 18 from Exodus 32. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is the sound of war in the camp. But Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory, and it is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. Many of us here this morning can recall some staycation from our personal history, and so I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to those who I think have an understanding of what we mean when we say staycation. It would be presumptuous of me to, uh, to assume that you remember the historical context for the events described here in Exodus 32. So let me refresh your memory. The people of God, Israel, had only recently been delivered from slavery in Egypt. Under God's protection and leadership, they had crossed the Reed Sea and had made their way on foot to Mount Sinai. There at Sinai, God met with His people and displayed His glory as they had never before seen it. Many commentators believe He displayed His glory there as He has never again shown it to man and will not until we're taken home to be with Him in glory. Shortly thereafter, after God displays His glory in its fullness, God calls Moses to join Him on the top of the mountain. For 40 days... Moses communes with God here at Sinai while the people below in the valley um, can still see the glory of God burning brightly on the mount as God is communicating to Moses and as he is laying down the foundations for his covenant with his people Israel. The glory remains present and visible to them. But as hard as it is to imagine, the people quickly grew accustomed to the glory of God. 
and they grew weary of Moses' absence. And then, in what was one of the most foolish and blasphemous acts recorded in biblical history, the people of God came to Moses' brother Aaron and requested that he make for them gods that would lead them through the wilderness. And Aaron, motivated by a desire to please the people, took their gold earrings and fashioned a golden bull, really, not so much a calf, but a bull, which some of them had actually learned to worship during their days in Egypt. And so delighted were the children of Israel with their new gods that they threw themselves a party. More accurately, they threw themselves an orgy to celebrate their gods. And they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Well, these then were the events that precipitated the noise coming from the camp of the Israelites on the occasion described here in Exodus 32. And they answer in large part the first point on my outline this morning, which is the occasion for the noise coming from the encampment of God's people. But before we go on to look at the nature of this noise, let me add a word or two more about the occasion. Bernard Ram, in his little book, God's Way Out, has this to say. He says, chapter 32 of Exodus tells of a terrible incongruity, like a murder in a cathedral after a high mass, or a rape, rape at a wedding feast, or goofy clowns at a funeral. Something occurs that is entirely out of place. In the midst of a high and holy revelation, in the midst of the manifestation of the glory of God, a terrible incident of idolatry occurred, accompanied by gross immoral behavior. The psalmist, he writes, speaks of it in Psalm 106 when he says, At Sinai they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glory, that is the glory of Jehovah God, for an image of a bull which eats grass. He goes on to say they forgot the God who had saved them, who had done great things in the land of Egypt, miracles in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. He writes, it's shocking. How could such depravity break out in the midst of such holiness? How could gratitude for redemption from the slavery of Egypt so soon give way to idolatrous worship? Nor was all this done in secret or in quiet tones. It was done for all to hear. Way up at the top of the mountain, God heard the noise of the celebration, and he sent Moses scurrying down from the mountainside to quiet the people. And there you have it, the context for the noise we're going to talk about this morning. As unlikely, as inappropriate as it may sound, the blasphemous noise coming from the encampment of God's people occurred in the very moment that God's glory blazed on the holy mountain and God with his own hand was inscribing the Ten Commandments for his people. That brings us to a consideration of a second point, a second observation from our text today. And that's the nature of the noise coming from the people of God. The noise coming from God's people at the base of Sinai is variously described in our text as the sound of, verse 8, eating and drinking. That is the sound of feasting. We know what that sound is. We're going to enjoy it again pretty soon at Thanksgiving, aren't we? It was the sound of thousands of people feasting, eating and drinking. 
It was according to verses 17 and 18, the sound of shouting and singing and dancing was the sound, the sound of celebration like that following a great battle. Verse 25, it was the sound of people running wild. It was the sound of people out of control. But if we've got to settle for just one word to describe the noise coming from the camp of the Israelites, it would have to be the word that comes across in most of our English translations as revelry. Revelry. And what is revelry, you may ask? What kind of noise does revelry make? The Hebrew word used here in our text is a word that scholars have said a great deal about, and there's some dispute even over its exact meaning. I was talking with a brother between services about this. But the Hebrew word seems to suggest the following. Nakedness, illicit and immoral sexual behavior, drunken jesting, mocking of the holy, and drunkenness as in orgies. It's no wonder then that the Holy Scripture sums up the noise made by the Israelites on this occasion as, again, verse 25, running wild, the noise of people out of control. In modern day parlance, the noise coming from the camp of the Israelites was the noise of tens of thousands of people partying. It was campus town on Friday night. It was the sound of the world on New Year's Eve. It was the sound of out of control and off the hook. But here's the catch. This was the sound of God's own people. It came from His own camp, not the world. The Apostle Paul faced a similar dilemma in the first century church. Writing to the church in 1 Corinthians, he condemns the revelry going on in that city. He cites the following, incest, prostitution, homosexual behavior, drunkenness, theft, swindlers, slanderers. And then he proceeds to make this totally unexpected statement. Chapter 5, verse 11 of 1 Corinthians, he says, but now, but now I'm writing to you. I'm writing to the church when I mention these things. And then in verse 1, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind that even pagans don't tolerate. Would to God this was the last time such noise was heard coming from the church, the people of God. But church history assures us it was not. Worse yet, the evening news reminds us on an all-too-regular basis that the noise emanating from the church today in 2021 is not much better. It would appear that even today the terms running wild and out of control are all too descriptive of many a local congregation. But before we address this sad situation any further, let me go back to the text for a minute and make a third observation here, which is this. I want to observe the hearers on this occasion, the hearers and what each one of them heard. The first to hear the noise coming from the congregation at the base of Mount Sinai was God Himself. 
In verse 7 of our text, we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down at once, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have... They're, they're Moses' people now, notice. God's so disgusted with him. The people you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have made themselves an idol. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it. And they have said, and this is what God heard. This is what God heard. They have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Not Jehovah God. Not the God of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Moses, but, but the image of a cow covered with gold. A, a lifeless, impotent piece of crude art fashioned by a man just like them. And suddenly the scripture writer's choice of words in verse 6 makes perfect sense. You recall the word used under inspiration to describe the, the noise rising from God's people? The word was revelry, wasn't it? We said it is used in Scripture of drunkenness, of sexual indecency, of running wild. But here's what I didn't tell you earlier. Some scholars actually trace it back to a root word meaning mocking. He heard them ascribing His glory to a God who was no God at all. A God with the face of a cow. No wonder the text says in verse 10, and his anger burned against them. Nine times in this chapter and in the parallel chapter in Deuteronomy, nine times God is said to have been angry with his people on this occasion, so angry that he thought to destroy them. The second person in our text to hear the noise coming from the Israelite camp was Joshua. Isn't that interesting? You may recall that when Moses ascended Mount Sinai he, he, to meet with God, Joshua, his steady aide, accompanied him halfway up the mountain. And now as Moses descends the mountain, he is once again joined by Joshua. In verse 17 we read, when Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there's the sound of war in the camp. He didn't know what else to compare it to. It was loud, it was raucous, it was some kind of either a celebration or a wailing. He couldn't make it out. It was utterly confusing to him. And Joshua's confusion is quickly addressed by Moses in verse 18. When Moses says, no, no, it's not the sound of victory and it is not the sound of defeat. All too soon, Joshua, along with Moses, will discover exactly what the noise in the camp is all about. But for the moment, the noise coming from the congregation of God's elect only produced in them a sense of confusion. What is this noise? Now, there's more to be said here, but, but we'll come back to that later. For now, I simply want you to note that the noise coming from the congregation of, at Sinai left Joshua confused as to its meaning. Of course, the third person in our text to hear the noise from the Israelite camp was Moses himself. And Moses replied, verse 18, it's not the sound of victory, it's not the sound of defeat, it's the sound of singing that I hear. Now that could be a good thing, all kinds of singing, right? On other occasions, this same word is used to refer to God's people singing, singing antiphonally, back and forth to one another, singing the praises of God, back and forth, back and forth. On yet other occasions, as in Exodus 15, just a few chapters before this, we have the song of Moses 
and Miriam. Can I get, is that up on the screen? Okay. Here's some of the phrases from the song of Moses and Miriam. After they had crossed the Red Sea safely and God had brought them through. And together, I didn't know Moses was a musician. Did you? But here, here's some of the words that he and Miriam put together on this occasion. Imagine now two, three million strong. The sons and daughters of Israel singing this praise to God. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns forever and ever. But on this occasion, the word singing takes on a very different meaning. Having already been warned by God of what he's about to encounter when he re-enters the Israelite camp below, Moses' reference to singing can only anticipate partying, drinking songs, and the music of a people who are running wild. What Moses hears and rightly understands is the church, the people of God, out of control. The people of God partying. There's still one more group of hearers. This is actually a group of hearers alluded to in our text. And that's Israel's enemies. In verse 25, we read, Aaron had let the people of God get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. Who were these enemies? They were the Goyim, the peoples, the surrounding tribes in that area. Pagans, sometimes defined as the object of Israel's mission to make the glory of God known. Other times described as the enemy of God's people. You know that in like fashion, those outside the church are at times viewed as the object of the church's mission to make Christ known. Other times, they are referred to in the New Testament as the enemies of of the gospel. In our passage for today, they are viewed as the enemies of God and His people. But what is significant for this study is that they too heard the noise coming from the camp of God's people, and what they heard made them laugh. The word speaks of a derisive whisper. No doubt these tribes had their own spies. If you've got two to three million refugees on your border and your tribe numbers considerably less than that, you're going to send out some spies and find out what's going on. The paparazzi would have been there, of course. Some agents would have been there. And the word came back to, to the, the tribes. The word came back to them on this occasion that there was reason for a good laugh. Have you heard they'd say? And then they'd, they'd proceed to recite all the foul tales that they'd heard about those holier-than-thou Israelites, those people that thought they were the special people of God. Imagine that. And they would say among themselves, so this is what they're really like. The result was that both Israel and their God became laughingstocks. God's glory was dragged through the mud, and his people's reputation was given a black eye. 
This is the only place in Scripture I know of where God's people are specifically said to have become a laughingstock before the world. But unfortunately, it wasn't the last time the people of God became a laughingstock, was it? In our own day, in our own country, in our own greater Chicagoland, we've experienced a similar phenomenon in our own day. The people of God, the church, becoming a laughingstock to those on the outside. In the past few years, the press has had a field day reporting on the foolish and impure antics of one pastor or another, one local congregation or another. There's absolutely no need for me to recite the list of fallen churches and fallen leaders. It would serve no purpose. We've all heard the stories. We've all winced. On occasion, we've even shed a tear. Or something in our soul has been angry, deeply upset over this terrible thing that's happened to the reputation of Christ and His church. The church has become a laughingstock for many. And the Christ that we serve has been denied the glory and the praise that's due Him. All this in spite of the fact in spite of the fact that ours is the only message that can save and the only hope for a broken and hostile world. But the noise coming from many of our churches has drowned out the sound, the message, the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's not just the immorality in the church that has robbed Christ of the glory and honor due Him. It's also our failure to stay true to our message and mission. Far too many of our churches have forsaken the good news of the gospel for a gospel of politics. Do you know there are people out there in the world who actually think the evangelical church is just a wing of the Republican Party? Or they've forsaken the gospel of Jesus Christ for a health and wealth gospel or for a gospel of grace without holiness or a gospel of activism or escapism or, or even in some sad cases a gospel of hatred. Good news of hatred for our enemies? Really? And the result is that the noise coming from the church at the beginning of the 21st century has left many, what? Confused about who Christ really is and what the church of Jesus Christ is all about. We can't, this morning, correct all the false messages that have gone out from the church. But going forward, we need to find a better way. Can I suggest to you a story from my own experience that I think may give us a picture at least in part of what a better way would look like, would sound like. It was about 1990, I don't recall the exact year, the Evangelical Free Church held its annual conference in Wichita, Kansas. Sherry and I were there, enjoyed a week's emphasis on worship. And one of the groups that was there to help lead us in our worship times was the choir from our Hershey, Pennsylvania Free Church. They did a wonderful job of leading us in our worship and in song times. Forty, fifty strong, they had flown out together to be with us that week. 
At the end of the conference, Sherry and I went to the airport to catch a flight back to O'Hare. While we were there, sitting at our gate, waiting for the flight, um, began to hear a ruckus of sorts. And, and uh, the, the corridor leading down to the gates beyond us began to back up. And then we could hear laughter and singing and uh, just people, the general noise of people who were gathering and chit-chatting. As I looked down the hallway, I could see that the, on down the hall there was some area where the attention was, it was coming from. And so I said to Sherry, wait here, I'm going to make my way down and see what that's all about. When I got down to gate 34, I discovered what it was. That's where the choir from Hershey, Pennsylvania was waiting on their flight. They were having a great time. They were just enjoying themselves in Christ, being who Christians are, whether they know or don't know anybody else is looking. It wasn't a show. It was just God's people experiencing His presence in an airport, and people were attracted. They sang songs, and people would applaud, and then they would get together and huddle, and one of the sisters said, you know, I'm struggling with this or that, and they gathered around her and prayed for her, and I noticed that some in the crowd bowed their heads, and and then they told stories of the most embarrassing event in their life, and they laughed, and they shared, sang happy birthday to one of the brothers, and somebody at one point said, you know, it reminds me of something I was reading in my scriptures the other day, and he read a few verses, and there were a couple amens, and thank the Lord, and, and the crowd grew and grew until you could hardly get through. This went on for some while. In fact, eventually I had to leave the service because I had to get back for my flight. It was a wonderful time. There was no gospel being preached. There was no Bible open that I saw. There was no four spiritual laws that was being presented. But Jesus Christ was being uplifted. And the church of Jesus Christ was attractive and winsome and faithful in letting others know what it means to be the people of God in the world. And he was beautiful there. He was wonderful, and I loved his reputation that day, and I loved the reputation of his church as they had discovered that just being the people of God freely and openly is powerful and beautiful. So what is all the noise about? about a beautiful Savior, a glorious Lord. In a church that God knows we're imperfect, but has a mission and a calling and the joy to make our Savior known. You're privileged people. I don't know how much you know that. I, among you, I'm one of the privileged. Week after week, we come and we hear a faithful proclamation of the gospel. Pastor Jay never fails. One of the things I said to him after we were here just a few Sundays, I said, I look forward to coming so much because I know the word will be opened and I know Jesus Christ will be lifted up. You're so fortunate. You're so blessed. Here's the, here's the you hear the plane circling? Here it is. Okay, here it is. This week, I want you to be conscious of the noise your life is making. Not just the words you speak, but the actions you take, and maybe even the things on your email and in your phone conversations. What's the noise coming from your life? Does it lift up the cross? Does it lift up Jesus Christ? Does it suggest that the church of Jesus Christ in this age is a healthy, whole, attractive people? who honor their God and serve Him 
day by day. Spirit of God, teach us. Teach us the sounds of the gospel, the good news, through our lives in everyday situations. Yes, we need to preach. Yes, we need to share the faith and, and, and bring others to Christ. But, oh, God, let us be attractive and winsome and demonstrate the goodness and the glory of our Savior in all that we do and in every situation. Be glorified, we pray. Amen.